Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. In this edition, we hear from speakers at an education day coordinated by the Victorian Paediatric Rehabilitation Service. We partnered with VPRS to record and share selected sessions. We'll hear this discussion in four parts. This is part two. In parts one, three, and four, participation, outpatient developmental assessment programs, and early detection and intervention. We'll hear now from Professor Christine Imms, head of the School of Allied Health at Australian Catholic University. Christine talks about upper limb orthoses. First of all, I want to talk about the problem under consideration. Uh, I want to talk about what the purpose of orthoses are, briefly tell you what the evidence to date is, and then talk about what we are doing. And I'll try not to chastise Sue too often for not talking about three trials that are going on at the moment. (laughs) Okay, so what's the problem? (laughs) Okay, so I just want to scope what I'm talking about today. the title actually said uh, upper limb orthoses in neurodisability, and of course that could be incredibly broad neurodisability. I want to talk about childhood onset neurodisability, and I'm really going to focus on um, cerebral palsy. Now, I know you all know that cerebral palsy is a disorder of movement and posture, um, and I know that you know that it's accompanied by a range of different associated conditions. And I just want to focus a little bit on those secondary musculoskeletal impairments. So if we think about the um, aspects of the movement disorder that are in focus when we're talking about the kinds of orthoses that I want to talk about anyway, um, are in fact uh, the hypotonia. So hypotonia is the sensation of resistance that's encountered as a joint is passively moved through a range of motion. And that hypotonia is made up of two components, the joint and muscle resistance to the movement and the stretch reflex. So if we think about children with um, cerebral palsy who have an upper neurone syndrome, they have two, those two elements, the neural related, for example, spasticity, um, components that influence joint range of movement and the, and the resistance to movement, and also the non-neural components. So that's changes in mechanical muscle properties and muscle stiffness. Um, though both of those things interact together and can increase resistance to passive movement. We know when we look at the literature um, of kids with CP is that there are longitudinal changes over time, okay? So if we look at um, some of the work coming out of CP Up, so the Swedish follow-up program, um, particularly focused on the lower limb between children aged 2 and 14 years of age, that they can demonstrate that there is increased stiffness and that that occurs prior to the age of 3. So children aren't necessarily born feeling stiff in those limbs where they have the impact of CP, but they have that increasing stiffness. And that as children get older, there is some evidence to suggest that stiffness increases, whereas spasticity may decrease with age. So what's going on? So we know that in terms of growing children, so that's where we have changing limb lengths particularly, the lengthening of muscle is stimulated by the growth of bone and of muscle excursion, so muscle movements. Now, overactivity in the muscle related to that upper motor neurone um, issue and the stretch reflex and immobilisation in shortened positions because of that spasticity can lead to a failure of muscle growth. We also know that if you have prolonged activation due to spasticity in the muscle belly, that you can get muscle fibre shortening and that also results in stiffer muscles. So that this combination of things is what actually leads to that increasing resistance to stretch, which feels like muscle stiffness, and in some children a restricted range of movement, and in some children pain associated with that. So in terms of the upper limb, does it matter? 
So we, we do have one population-based study, again from Sweden, that looked at children aged 4 to 14 year olds, particularly focused on the upper limb. Now the Zancoli is a measure of the impact of wrist flexion spasticity on hand movement and have three different, um, three different categories. So if you can actually extend your fingers and your wrist, then you're a Zancoli one. But as soon as you have to actually flex your wrist to be able to extend your fingers, you start to get a, a lower level of classification. So 31% of this population had a Zancoli level two, which meant that they couldn't straighten their fingers unless the wrist was flexed a little bit, okay? And 40% had a thumb in palm deformity in at least one hand, 15% in two hands. And then 14% of children had no active hand function. So we do know that it matters, that there is a strong correlation between whether or not you can move your hand through its range of movement and um, what you can do with your hands. It's not the only thing. We know that how you use your hands is much more complicated than having good range of movement and no spasticity, but it is uh, one of the elements. So we would say at this point that secondary musculoskeletal problems are progressive and important to control if it's possible to do so. So what is the purpose of an orthosis? So the purpose of an orthosis, particularly this kind of one, which is, provides a static low load stretch, um, is, is for overactive muscles in growing children. And the goal is that we're able to prevent or reduce that muscle stiffness, that we can maintain or increase passive and active range of movement, hopefully prevent contracture, and or prevent or reduce abnormal postures during um, active movement. I've got that in two places. I didn't mean to do that, sorry. So if we think about orthoses a little bit more detail, we can look at um, what the association of hand therapies, <coughs> how they classify the purpose of orthoses. One of the problems in the literature around orthosis use is actually the terminology used to describe the point of, a, of an orthosis and the action that it's trying to provide. So we end up with words like functional and non-functional, dynamic and static. Um, and so the Association of Hand Therapy have actually got a, di a different classification system altogether. And they talk about what's the actual goal of the orthosis on the joint and the soft tissues around the joint. And so, of course, you're going to depend on where you want to put it. We're talking about the upper limb, and I'm probably focusing mostly on the hand. If we have an immobilisation um, splint or orthosis, what it's actually trying to do is stop motion at a particular joint. And sometimes we would see that in CP in a thumb in palm orthosis that's made out of thermoplastic material that's really just holding the, um, this, uh, the MTP out of the palm in, with the goal of trying to improve the child's ability to grasp. We also see mobilisation orthoses. These are really common. And the goal is to apply forces to gain motion either passively or as a dynamic movement assist. So we would see when we provide a rigid wrist-hand orthosis to be worn overnight, that this actually is a mobilisation <coughs> orthosis. It's actually, the goal of it is to mobilise soft tissue, okay, to increase the length of those soft tissues. So just thought it was important to think about the language because it becomes quite important when we look at the literature and the systematic reviews of evidence about what works and what doesn't and for what purpose. So I just thought I'd quickly go through, um, and very quickly, three systematic reviews that are quite recent in this area. One's a Cochrane review that was first published in 2010 and updated this year. And then the 2004 Jackman, 14 Jackman Review and Garbellini's 2017. So the Cochrane Review, which you may be familiar with the 2010 version, aimed to determine the effects of stretch on contracture on people with or at risk of contracture. They were interested in all sorts of things, um, including joint mobility and quality of life. They evaluated what they called short-term, less than a week, and long-term, more than a week, 
um, uh, benefits or outcomes, and they did a meta-analysis. So they did quite uh, good, a very good, very high-quality review. Uh, inclusion criteria were um, all types of mechanical elongation of soft tissue for varying periods of time. So that could have been a physical stretching, a positioning device, casting or splinting. Um, they included participants across all age ranges and also with all kinds of diagnoses. And then they classified their outcomes according to whether people had a neurological condition or a non-neurological condition. They included upper and lower limb um, interventions as well. So the 2017 review includes 49 studies with over 2,000 participants. No study performed stretch for more than seven months. And in people with neurological conditions, stretch had no short-term, that's less than a week, effect on joint mobility with a mean difference of two degrees. No CP studies included in that analysis. There was also no long-term no long outcome, so more than one week, less than seven months, effect on joint mobility with a mean difference of one degree. There were two CP studies in that, but only one of them was in the upper limb. Uncertain effect on pain and activity limitations. Quality of life and participation were either never measured or were the data was not able to be used in a meta-analysis. And there were very few reported adverse outcomes. So there were only five studies included um, a reporting of adverse outcomes. And of those five studies, only eight individuals had an adverse outcome related to reddening of skin or um, something like that. So the Cochrane conclusions were that stretch does not have a clinically important effect on joint mobility for people with or at risk of contracture if performed less than seven months, and the effects of longer periods of intervention are not, have not been investigated. And just to remind you that this study included four studies of children with CP, one which included the wrist and hand. So if we look at Jackman, they um, published this particular systematic review in 2014 and it was much more focused, looking at hand splints and looking at children with CP or brain injury. They are interested across the ICF in both body structure, function, activity and participation outcomes. They included six studies of moderate methodological quality, 224 participants with CP. No studies of children with acquired brain injury came into this review. Five of the studies investigated non-functional hand splints, so remember this terminology issue, and one investigated functional hand splints. So for your information, the functional one was a splint that was intended to be worn during activity and the non-functional not during activity. All studies combined hand splints with therapy of some sort. No study continued beyond six months. So for these six studies, or five of the six studies, found a small benefit of those non-functional hand splints plus therapy on upper limb skills over and above therapy alone. But it was a small difference. And that when you stopped wearing the splint, the benefits diminished. And their conclusions were that clinicians should consider carefully whether limb splint is, use is the most effective intervention for children with CP within the context of the child and family to lead to meaningful long-term outcomes. So they were essentially saying, maybe we don't bother. Okay. Now, Garbellini published just this year, late last year, early this year, and aimed to investigate two um, different elements. And again, very, very much focused on children with cerebral palsy and was really interested in the fact that the diversity of the um, interventions, splinting interventions or orthosis interventions that were studied within the Jackman trial actually meant that it was quite hard to draw definitive conclusions because each of the interventions were different. And so uh, Simon decided that it was important to understand what were the reported rationales, so what were the reasons for the prescription of an upper limb orthosis for children with CP, and then according to those, were they effective? So according to the reason for them being prescribed. 
So this particular review included intervention studies of any design. And in the review, we had 16 studies that included 176 participants. Two were randomised trials, two were SCEDs, so single case experimental designs, six pre-test, post-test studies, five case series and one case study. So you can see the diversity of intervention type research. So you can already start to think, well, what's the, how, how believable will the evidence be if there, um, if there is an effect? But if we look at the first aim, which is the rationale for prescription, only two of these studies provided a clear rationale for orthosis use, only two. One was to improve the position of the hypertonic hand or, and to reduce wrist flexion, and the other was to replace the therapist's hands during therapy. There were six studies that provided no clear rationale, but you could kind of map the purpose of the splint to body structure and function gains as a, as a goal. And then there were eight studies that provided no rationale at all for why they were providing a splint. If we looked at the effect according to purpose, that of course reduces us to eight studies because we only have a purpose for eight studies. And again, just showing you what, those, what, what the study designs were and that all of those studies did show that there was a positive effect of orthosis on the children that were included in their study. And I just want you to be very careful about how you take away that message. Only in three studies could the effects actually be linked to the prescribed purpose of the, of the splint. So again, we're starting to, to say that the evidence that we have is not very good evidence for us to actually make decisions. So we have, in terms of author's conclusions here, in fact, what I have just said, we can't make definitive conclusions because we've got really inconsistent terminology. We have high variation in orthosis design and application. We have poorly defined purpose for orthosis use and the measurement outcomes often don't match what it is that we think we're setting out to do. So that means that as clinicians, there's actually very little clear evidence to support your decision-making in children with cerebral palsy. Okay, so what, what we're doing at this point in time then is a study, believe it or not. <laughs> in fact, we're doing two. So the protocol for the older children's trial is published and you can come back to this. But what we're actually doing is two concurrent multi-centre randomised control trials of rigid upper limb or wrist hand orthoses. So the IWAT trial is the infant wrist hand orthosis trial and the minimising impairment trial is for the older children. And our goal actually is to evaluate the efficacy of medium to long term use of rigid wrist hand orthoses in children with cerebral palsy. Because of those longitudinal changes in the upper limb in children with cerebral palsy, because we know that seven months is not a very long time in the life of a child who is growing and changing uh, rapidly, we think we really do need to address this question much more systematically and over a longer period of time. We know that um, orthoses are still being prescribed in clinical practice for children with cerebral palsy, despite the Catalinic and Harvey systematic Cochrane review. Um, and the reason for that is clinical knowledge and long-term clinical knowledge. But really, do we actually know that they work? So our question is, does the provision of a serially adjustable rigid wrist hand orthosis in combination with usual multidisciplinary care compared to usual care alone, in the little children's trial, the infant trial, prevent or minimise the loss of passive range of movement at the wrist. And in the older children's trial, the MIT trial, reduce contracture and or prevent further loss of range of movement. We're also interested in whether or not there's pain associated with either wearing the splint or as a result of having um, increased loss of range of movement and whether or not we can change activity performance or ease of care. And we're actually going to conduct, provide this intervention for three years. Secondary outcomes are participation and quality of life, but as I've just finished talking about participation, 
body structures and functions changes have to be massive to make an immediate impact or a linear impact on participation. So we're looking at what happens over time uh, at a three-year period um, and also in terms of quality of life. We're also embedded economic analysis into this trial. It's really important to understand not only whether things are effective, but are they cost effective? Is it the best way to spend our dollar? So I've said these are concurrent, multi-centre, longitudinal, randomised controlled trials with an embedded economic analysis. The intervention is a rigid, serially adjustable wrist-hand orthosis. It's a mobilisation orthosis. That's its point, is to mobilise soft tissue. And it's worn for six hours overnight, every night for three years. Or at least that's what it's prescribed for. <laughs> so the two inclusion criteria for the little children's trial, we need 94, according to our um, sample size estimates. They're aged less than three years at time of entry to the trial, and they'll, they'll obviously stay in for three years with or at risk of CP. For the older children's trial, we're starting at five years, five to 15 years. Also, um, there's the inclusion and exclusion criteria for them. We have currently 53 families in the little children's trial and 77 families in the older children's trial, and we are still recruiting Sue. We are. <laughs> we are. <laughs> Sue, we're still recruiting. <laughs> okay, why is it important? Good orthoses are really complex to make, particularly for complex children, and they're also expensive to make and to follow up and ensure that they fit well. They can be really hard for children to tolerate, and they require a major commitment from families to manage. If they work, they're worth the effort. If they don't, there's many other things that children and families should do. So, children and families, we'd like to acknowledge that they, they are committing to this trial. It's a long trial, it's hard to commit to, and we're really grateful for that. We have some funding, we need some more. Uh, and uh, it's a very big investigator team. I didn't have the nice photo of the different states, but it's here in Victoria, WA and New South Wales. Um, and it's part of the CRECP. Thank you for listening to the Centre of Research Excellence and Cerebral Palsy podcast. To find out more about our CRE, head to our website at crecp.org.au. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss our next episode. Trixie Studio.